So I'm just thankful to be in here with you as we close out the book of 1 Peter. Uh, This is our last sermon in our series titled Exiles. This title is from the very first book, uh, or for the very first verse of this book, when the apostle Peter identifies uh, who he is writing to, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Though we are not of the original audience, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, as uh, in this world are spiritual exiles and will remain so until his ultimate return in which he will right all wrongs and call us unto himself. If you've been here for this entire series, you know that we have covered a lot. Okay, We believe here at Mosaic that aside from the occasional topical series uh, that has a very specific meaning and purpose, uh, the Bible should be taught and preached expositionally. This means choosing a book of the Bible like 1 Peter and preaching it from beginning to end in order and verse by verse. This allows for the author's flow of ideas and the original context of the situations of a text to be understood. This means that we can cover some hard topics that might go overlooked when it comes to normal sermon topics, right? Like biblical submission within marriage. Biblical submission in light of the government or governing forces. And last week, we talked about submission in regards to the elders or leaders of the church. In our series, we've talked about persecution, unfair sufferings of Christians, and we've discussed living holy, God-glorifying lives, all of which Peter has wrote about in this very epistle. We are almost home, Christian. So together as the body of Christ, let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to go all the way to the end, after which we will follow in prayer, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Savannah, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning to be together as your body. God, I pray now that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would calm this heart, Father, that your word would go out and it would not return void, that I would know that the work is to be done by you and your spirit, Father, and I can rely and trust on that. God, would you give me clarity? Would you open this body, Father, whom I love dearly, whom you love even greater than I do? Would you open their eyes soften their hearts to you and your word this morning. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get into a little more detail. Okay, we're going to do a quick recap. What I mean by that is we're going to cover one verse from last week, specifically verse five of chapter five. Okay, Uh, we need to do this because Peter is actually continuing on his thought process in verse six. 
This can be seen and determined by the word used here, therefore, right? Peter says in the second half of verse five of this chapter, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As such, Peter continues this thought in verse six and seven of our text today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, right? Because of the Lord's opposition to the proud, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But Peter doesn't end there, does he? No, he points to a reason to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's not just because God opposes the proud, though that is certainly true and cause enough for us to say, maybe I should turn to God and away from my pride, but it's also for our exaltation. Peter uses the words, so that. Humble yourselves so that you may be exalted at the proper time. Or in other words, the key to one's future exaltation is the humbling of oneself here and now. What does it mean to be under the mighty hand of God? Well, simply put, it means humble obedience to the king of the universe. To believe the good news of the gospel that he came to save sinners like you and like me, and he paid for and bought it with his own blood. To abide in him, not just on the day that you raised your hand and confessed, but every day, and to obey the word of God, a life that is completely shifted from spiritual death into spiritual life, and that life places itself willingly with a humble heart under the authority of God. It is not legalistic to say that. It is not uh, pharisaical to follow the path of the Pharisees, right? It's not hypocritical to say that. Peter says in this very epistle in chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, right? Therefore, 13 through 16, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. First John tells us that we should confess and repent of our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin if we do that, and it is not any of those things that the world would accuse us of, of saying we should live holy lives. Humbling ourselves to God means to be placed willingly under his rule in this place. Under the hand of God is the safest place that you and I can be. I'm not sure what, his picture, what picture is created for you in your minds at the, at the words of 1 Peter here when he says, under the mighty hand of God. But for me, it is like I'm standing alone in darkness when then this impossibly huge and mighty hand comes and just rests itself over me, covering me, protecting me, and comforting me. If the mighty judge of the universe that is God Almighty, who will judge, who will judge all sin and every utterance of our mouths, if he is covering us, then who could do anything to us? Who could stop what God has put forth? This in and of itself requires that of an eternal perspective, right? Almost home. That means an eternal perspective, that you and I are almost to Jesus, fully and glorified with him. And it is built upon and maintained by a Christian 
who knows that the Christ is returning for his people. There is a responsibility within this text for the Christian. There is. Humble yourselves. This is active. This is not passive. We are under God's authority, and his people will willingly place themselves under it, looking to what is called future grace. Do so. This is why we've been saying, Christians, you are exiles here, almost home. It's not going to be easy, right? There will be emotional pain that is stirred from following Jesus and cultural pain from obeying Jesus. And as we saw in this very epistle, the probability of persecution, that persecution for the church here in America is is an anomaly that we are able to gather here without fear. But Peter says, at the proper time, God himself will exalt you. We could honestly wrap it up here, right? Lunchtime, we're done, right? Seriously, though, this is so important for us to gain. This is so important for us to see that straining towards the goal, running the race with endurance, as Paul says, when the, when the world asks, why don't you stop following Jesus to live it up here, right? Get drunk and be merry, for tomorrow we die, to denounce him when your life is on the line. You can say, your confidence, your security is in the promise of the future exaltation that will come. Okay, we need to move on, but church, this is profound. This truth is glorious. Do what you want with me, government. Do what you want with me, terrorists. Christ is king. And I have confidence that he will do what he says he will do for me. Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We are able to willingly humble ourselves now, even being reviled, persecuted, slandered, because we are blessed. And we are going to be exalted And this is the safest place for us to be, church, under the authority of the mighty hand of God. But Peter doesn't end the thought here. Peter really builds upon his previous ideas and flows, okay? Peter goes on to address one of the largest struggles that I have seen within ministry, come to hear from many brothers and sisters within ministry. This is the battle of anxiety. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, comma, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some translations would replace that comma, create a whole new sentence in verse seven, but this isn't accurate to the original author's intent, nor the language, okay? Peter connects humility with anxiety, and everyone has anxiety, right? If you don't have anxiety, you've never had anxiety, come talk to me after. Tell me how. Honestly, everybody has anxiety, some of which some people struggle more than others, right? Some people actually have a misfiring of the brain in chemicals and and different disorders that, that affect the body's natural levels of anxiety, but the medical, the brokenness of our world, that that aside, 
The outliers aside, anxiety in and of itself is something that everyone can have at any point in time to varying degrees. These two verses connects and applies to quite a bit of Peter's message. We are called, as we've seen in this epistle, through our study that we are called to humble ourselves to everyone in the church. Verse five of chapter five, to seek living, God-glorifying lives. Chapter two, verses nine through 12, which includes dying to ourselves and counting others as more important than us. And the question becomes, and this is a stem of anxiety, when we are doing all of this for everyone else, who is gonna take care of us? When we're being the good Christian, Right? What will become of us? Surely, church, you can hear the temptation of the enemy in that question. Right? What are we to do with the troubles of this earth, both the natural consequences of proclaiming Christ as king and just living in a broken world? As broken, sinful, bad things happen, full of hard circumstances and situations, What are we to do when we are laying our lives out for others? When someone you love passes on or you're left without a job, there is very real suffering within this congregation. There is. We could go on. The list doesn't stop with two things, and that's not even mentioning the threat or fear that other followers of Jesus are experiencing today that we might ourselves experience in the future that if we continue to love Jesus, proclaim him as king, that there are those who will hurt us and will hurt our families. Peter says, not only will God exalt you at the proper time, should we place ourselves under his divine authority and will, Peter says, God also cares for you. He says he cares for you. He cares for me. He cares for you. While we are waiting on the future exaltation, God does not leave us to our own devices without help or security. And as we are laying down our lives for his church, God himself is there with us. He calls us to call upon him. Being God of the universe, how could we not cast every anxiety on him? Okay, this is the second point. This is kind of a longer one, but hoarded anxiety, clung anxiety that you do not let go is not conquered by momentary prayer, but a humble understanding and the lack of control that you have and the continual trust in he who both cares for you and rules all around you. Jesus teaches us in the gospel of Luke in chapter 11 to pray as the persistent neighbor, right? Middle of the night, three in the morning to be that neighbor that says, hey, I had a friend come, I need bread. Okay, he's sleeping with his family. Culturally, he'd have been sleeping in the main room with all of his kids surrounding him, but that neighbor is there knocking and he says, I need food. Jesus says that it is the man's impudence or rather his persistence that causes the owner of the food to get up and give it to him. At one point, you're just like, okay, shut up. I'll give it to you. It's fine, right? Jesus teaches us to pray like this. This is what he says. Retrieving the loaves of bread and giving it to the neighbor. Persist in prayer. You cannot bother God with the amount of prayers that you say. And as you are praying, realize that it is him who is in control. In light of anxiety, realize 
It is him who is in control and he cares for you. He is your heavenly father. Many of us didn't have a father growing up, right? Or, or another guy came in trying to fill the role. And that has been hard for me. And I know it's been hard for others to wrap our minds around a heavenly father who loves us dearly. God is both divine ruler and loving father to his people, okay? You can get it on the surface level, theologically, but to truly, knows what, to truly know what it means is going to take time and sanctification. A deeper walk with Jesus. Matthew chapter seven, verse 11 says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So pray, church, persistently, casting your anxiety on him who cares for you. And it's also him who has promised you great and glorious promises through the blood of Christ Jesus. It is pride that would stop us from casting our anxieties onto God. We really do want to think that we can solve it, right? We really do. We want to hold it close. We mustn't hoard anxiety. Like we have power over the circumstances surrounding it, right? We mustn't pray for it once and, and be surprised when we wake up the next morning and that emotion of anxiousness is still there. It didn't go away. And we're left there, arms out, wondering what happened, wondering where God is, where we went wrong. But this is not what God calls us to do. It's not a momentary prayer. It's a continual growing trust in him. It takes knowing who God is. It takes growing in our trust to him to fight it. It's a consistent and continual turning to him. Not only does God almighty sovereignly determine all things, from the rain to the sunshine, not only does he know every hair that is on your head, but he also cares for you. So when anxiety does come, because it will, it's not the problem that's causing in your mind anxiety that needs to be fixed. It's not what needs to be fixed. It's not control what we need, church. As hard as that is for us to think of, okay? It's trust. That's what we need. Now, we would say that we do trust God, right? And I am not opting that if you have anxiety, you don't trust God. Rather, I am saying that as we grow in our sanctification, we will find that practically, trusting in God when the rubber meets the road, per se, trusting in God at, at all times, including the hard ones, is, is more difficult than just acknowledging it theologically. It needs to be practical. So in these times, turn to the promises of God, to the future grace of God that is promised to you. Philippians 1, 6, and, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Turn to all of Romans 8. I'm not gonna read all of Romans 8, okay? But go there, right? Turn to the gospels. Turn to verse 10 of our text today. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is not prosperity theology, 
This is true, gospel-rooted promises from God. So in light of that, how could we not cast all of our anxieties on him, our worries? This is an active thing. The Christian bears much responsibility within the spiritual life that he now lives, okay? Humbling ourselves, casting all of our anxieties on him, and and being sober-minded and watchful because of who is against us. This is where Peter flows to next. That is the devil, the enemy, the accuser. If you are familiar with Peter, the brash, outspoken follower of Jesus, who said that he would never leave you, Lord, who cut off the ear of a soldier attempting to arrest Jesus, you know that Peter doesn't speak this warning, sober-mindedness and watchfulness, second-handedly, does he? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Peter knows what it's like to be stalked by the roaring lion, to be sifted like wheat and sin greatly in the midst of it. After great sorrow and repentance, Peter himself was restored by the Lord Jesus. As such, by firsthand acknowledgement of the dangers of this, he warns the Christians of the dispersion and us to be prepared for the enemy. This gives the image of a century, doesn't it? Or if someone is in an environment of consistent and persistent danger that could arise and pop up at any point in time, but it is not an enemy that we can fight by physical means, though some of us would find that to be a little bit easier, right? We almost wish. This is a battle fought on the impossible grounds of the spiritual world. The devil is not hunting for your flesh and bones. He's not a normal lion. Peter is is drawing a, a parallel here, but no, he seeks for our faith to be crushed between his jaws and for us to be tossed into eternal judgment. This is his goal. This is his aim. Lions, that is actual physical lions, okay, are incredibly intelligent predators, Right, I, I literally watched a 40-minute documentary on this, okay? These lions in Tanzania gained a taste for human flesh. That's not funny. That's terrifying, right? One lion in particular, by the villager's account, was said to have killed over 20 people by himself. Well, that's true or not? We have no clue. But these people were living in complete nightmare. Prides of lion who gained a taste for human flesh, lions that in the dead of the night would collapse their homes to get to them. Out in, out in rural country like that, farmers stayed with their crops at night to protect it from animals that would come and destroy it. That's their food for their family. That's their income. Whether the lions knew this or not or were seeking other food there, they would find and kill them. Then when the villagers began to get scared about sleeping at night in their fields, 
They stopped staying there, naturally. And the lions would wait for them when they came back from their farms at dusk. And when the farmers stopped going to the fields all together for fear of death, the lions would cross the river to get to them. These lions adjusted and shifted, changing its hunting grounds for wherever its prey was. Do you really think, do we think that the devil, all of the demons by which he controls, all of the world of which he is prince of the power of the air, would be any less vicious than this? Seeking to destroy the church of God? Any less spiteful? No. His hunting grounds are just different. Namely, he hunts within the grounds of our own sin and the pastures of our temptations. He will attempt, using sinful men and women of this world like, like ourselves before Jesus, using what appears to our carnal flesh that still remains in us, using the evil of the fallen spiritual beings to, to wave the flag of temptation in our faces. He will attempt to persuade you, distract you, and deter you, he will accuse you. And he is smart by how he does it. He can, and he will, find different angles in times to do such where it hurts the most for you. So what do you do, church? C.S. Lewis says this, and I think it's important to note this, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Our culture is really obsessed with the spiritual things, aren't they? Shows, movies, you can find any which of, of what's it called, entertainment regarding demons and devils and Satan while at the same time denying Christ or God in general. So do not make this mistake, church, saying that these things don't exist, nor make the, mis the mistake of, of ignoring it, but rather accept them for the reality that they are and prepare accordingly. You are not defenseless, nor are you unarmed in this battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints." And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. These are the words of the apostle Paul. Paul says that we must dress accordingly. 
He says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Once again, this is not passive, right? Put on the armor. Take up the sword. Take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. This is active. This is a call to arms. And just as Peter's words, right, to resist the devil is an active call, every morning that you and I wake up, every day that we are here on this earth before Jesus returns and restores everything in a new heaven and new earth, we Christians are against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, some don't like the analogy of war, right? I don't know if you've heard that when it comes to spiritual battle. But that's exactly what it is. It's a war for souls, and we are called to don the armor and fight the fight of faith. Now, there are a few encouragements I'd like to point out uh, that I think will be extremely important of application for this. Okay, so resisting the devil, that's a broad thing. Now, let's get into the points. Number one, uh, remember, whether circumstance or sin, you are not alone. I think it's a great ploy of the enemy to attempt to make you feel alone. This is what Peter actually points to here, that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, whether this is false accusations, or cultural or economical ostracizing because of your faith, or blatant and open persecution about Jesus' proclamation of his church, or whether it's a struggle, it feels like an all-out brawl against your own sin, you are not alone. I mean, for one, the Holy Spirit of God, as a Christian, indwells you when you are born again. And this, being indwelt by the Spirit, means that not only are you never truly alone, but God himself, being merciful and gracious, indwells you. This should strengthen our resolve immensely, shouldn't it? especially when it comes to resisting sin. Romans chapter six, verses 12 through 14 says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Since you and I as Christians are no longer slaves to sin, but alive unto Christ, you are given the life, the rebirth, and the strength to obey this, to resist the enemy, to not let sin reign in your mortal body. So fight, Christian, fight. By the power of the Holy Spirit with the sword and shield, fight. But also, right, this is what Peter alludes to is that Brothers all around the world is suffering as you do. Well, how's that supposed to help me? I'll tell you. Thanks for asking. When you know someone is struggling in a similar way that you are, has struggled in a similar way that you are, you're no longer the only one, right? That is immensely comforting. It is. It's immensely comforting. Be in community, we say. This is one of the reasons why, right? You are no longer alone. As the devil himself will attempt to convince you, 
And whether it is circumstance, hard realities of this world, or whether it's a struggle with sin, there are others who are in the same boat as you, and that strengthens you. It strengthens me. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it easier, but it does encourage you to continue the fight of faith. So resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by brothers and sisters of the faith, not only all throughout the world, but also as we see in scripture. Peter isn't even referring to anyone in particular, right? He's not saying, David, you're struggling with this, so so look to this brother at Mosaic Church. No, he gives it broad, to which our response should be, whether I'm facing, whatever I am facing, I am not alone. And if my brothers and sisters of the faith, read Hebrews chapter 11, the, the pinnacle, right, of faith. All of these brothers, David, King David, sin greatly, If he is restored by the Lord himself, surely we will be too if we carry on. So how could I not stand firm? Number two, within the call to fight, there is an assured victory. Notice how none of these texts say, do your best and hope for the rest to turn out great. It's not what it says. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will. Or what about James chapter 5, verse 7? Submit yourselves, yourselves therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There is no he might flee. He will. It's a sure thing, okay? What about Job? The Lord allowed Satan to take all that Job had to destroy it. What about him? Only to try to prove to God that Job was only faithful because of the blessings that God gave him. God allows Satan to do these things. Though Satan, Ephesians chapter 2, we see is the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, though we see Satan have some kind of power in this world, in the book of Job, it is undeniable that even though he is considered to be a prowling, roaring lion who seeks to devour our souls, he's on a leash, and God is holding him. That God... Our God, in his divine authority, allows the enemy to do certain things, and we are not called to be sorrowful through it, as if God was being mean or unjust to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete and lacking nothing. We can only rejoice in trials because we know who is controlling those trials. And that's our great God. Or what about Romans 8, 28 through 30? And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is assured victory. Assured victory for the bride of Jesus Christ, his church, and it was secured for us on the cross. Solidified and proven in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So though we are to be watchful, though we are to be sober-minded, believer, we can be confident in what is to come. We can. This should cause us to resist. Point number three, resist sin, comma, resist the devil. Resist sin, resist the devil. If you've been coming here for a very long time, I really hope you know what I'm referring to when I say the words already and not yet. The already and not yet. Is this time in redemptive history that that Christ has secured for us victory? He has done the work, He's paid the price for sinners, and he has and is continuing to do so, call lost sinners like we once were into the fold of God, redeeming them, and now calling them sons and daughters of the Most High. This is the already. But we are not yet in eternal paradise, fully restored, are we? If our fallen nature that we still have is indication of this, I don't know what is. It's not indication. I don't know what is. The devil cannot make you sin. You sin. I sin. There are our fleshly desires and our carnal nature. But he will attempt to take advantage of them. Do you remember what I said before? That the hunting grounds of the prowling, roaring lion is is the pasture of your temptation? He might be waving temptation in front of us, but it is us who gives into it, right? If you recall in the movie Aladdin, really like the movie Aladdin, Aladdin and the monkey Abu go into the cave of wonder, uh, only told to touch the lamp and to get the lamp and not to touch any of the endless piles of treasure there. But Abu, being Abu, can't help himself, can he? When a giant beautiful gem is placed so perfectly there for for someone to take, Abu's eyes go real wide, and he snatches it. Church, the devil might put the gem there, but it's still us who takes it. It's still us who takes it. We must resist sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Resist sin. Resist the temptations Resist the waving of excuses that the devil wishes for you to see and believe so that you could sin. 
And if you resist him, he will flee. If and when you need strength and encouragement to do this, remember that the battle is already won. We just haven't quite seen the fulfillment of all of it yet. We need to live a life rejoicing of the already, sharing with everyone that we can, shouting it from the mountains as we just sang. And we must be looking to the not yet. Resist the devil. Resist the temptation to sin and he will flee from you. And it might be a long battle. Might. Might feel like it doesn't end. It might be, and it definitely will be spiritual warfare. It's war, but because of Christ and what he's done for you and what he has done for me, you can say, I don't need to sin. I'm not under sin, I'm under grace. I'm already forgiven, already redeemed, and God's glorious promises are mine already. And I cannot wait to get to that not yet part. So the, the devil can roar his accusations before the throne. He can prowl around like a roaring, hungry lion seeking to devour me, but he has a savior to get through. And I am covered by the mighty hand of God. And there's nothing better than that. There's no place safer than that. I've repeated this verse, I think, three or four times now. We're going we're to say it again, though. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in this life or the next. This is a glorious promise, and it is given by the God of all grace. It's this grace that saves us. It's this grace that is the foundation of holding fast. It is his faithfulness to us by which we say with Peter in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Peter closes this letter with the part of the text that you send to your mom and dad, right? Like, hey, I, I love you. And the spouse says, hi, Right, Peter says, Savanus, my, my brother, uh, the, the bride, the Babylon. Like, he mentions all of these people that none of us know really who they are. His son, Mark. But it is nice to hear when you get that text, right? It is. And Peter is saying the same. By Savanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the book of 1 Peter. And he ends it with encouraging you that there are others with you. We are spiritual exiles here. And there are promises to you, Christian. There are promises to me that are there that we need to look to, to strengthen us and to encourage us. For you to hold fast, for you to remember that you are almost home. Jesus Christ so loved you and I that he laid down his life for us. And should we repent, turning from sin and trust in him, we will be exalted. We will be established. We will be strengthened. 
and we will be guarded by the mighty hand of God. But if we do not, God opposes us. This is a scary reality. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. But there is great hope even within that. It doesn't require you to get your life together. It doesn't require you to to meet some sort of standards that you yourself have, have set in your mind. And it doesn't require you to be on a specific level of theological intellectualism. It's faith. By God's grace. The free gift of God. The grace of God through faith saves lost sinners. Of which I was one. Which was you. So don't wait. There is a war raging around you. If you are not a Christian, if you are a Christian, you're aware of the battle. But if you're not, there is a war raging around you for your soul. So don't wait, okay? He wants to keep you from attaining salvation. When you die, when I die, we will stand before the judgment. And the only acceptable answer, as Pastor Alistair Begg points out, is in the third person. What I mean by that is this. You show up on the gates. Why are you here? Because the man on the cross said I could come. He said I could come. The man died for me, and I believe it. You cannot work for it. You cannot pretend to be a Christian while at the same time living deeply in the flesh knowing that repentance is far from you. Because once you get there, it'll be all done. So come talk to us. Myself, Josh, Pastor uh, Tristan back there, Pastor Jason back there. If you're a Christian who just needs encouragement and prayer, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Come talk to us. Let us pray for you. If you're not a Christian, you realize the spiritual danger that that you're in. Come talk to us. We would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you and invite you into our lives. So we close out with verse 11 of our text, 1 Peter chapter 5. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this day. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in relative safety. God, there is so much within this text. There is so much within this text. God, there is great promises that you will exalt us if we are to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And you also bring the reality of those who would oppose us. God, but your grace is sufficient for this day. God, it is. You are sufficient. Your mercies are new every single morning. If we confess and repent of our sin, we will be saved. So God, would you encourage those in this room who are followers of you to strive, to resist, to fight the fight of faith? And would you, God, for your glory, use this message 
use the believers in this room to call those who are not followers to come into the fold of God that they might too be saved. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's precious, precious name that we pray. Amen.